Well, that's just way cool. Yeah. We have a way cool person who creates our artwork for us. Whose birthday it is today? Carol Rojas. She's part of our worship team, and you saw her this morning, and she's responsible for that artwork. Isn't that awesome? Well, this morning we're going to continue in the series called Hell No. This is part three. And we're going to take a look at some scriptures on hell and really dive deep into um, what the Bible has to say about the subject. Where does this idea come from? And let's really get into the scriptures this morning regarding that. Um, as I see it right now, this is going to be six weeks in length. We've talked about where does hell come from? Is it in the Bible? Last week, we talked about if hell, and when we use the word hell or to the term hell, primarily, we are talking about eternal conscious torment in this series when we use that word. So if hell, a future destiny where there's eternal conscious torment, is real, then it depends primarily on this one thing. And we discussed that last week with you. What was that one thing? Today, let's look at the scriptures on hell. Next week, God's willing. Why is God so angry? Does he have to get even? And then in lesson number five, we're going to talk about is hell necessary in order to be able to share the gospel? And then finally, we'll wind up the series talking about universal hope, the hope of ultimate redemption. In this series of messages, I'll be pulling from the work of some of history's as well as present day's greatest theologians, scholars, and writers, including the writings of the Patristic Fathers, such as Clement, Origen, Ignatius, and Gregory of Nicaea, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, English theologian N.T. Wright, and American theologian and pastors Gregory Boyd and Brian Zahn. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the work of Brad Jerzak, Canadian author, speaker, pastor, and teacher. He is himself a theologian for his book entitled Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, upon which I'm basing this series and numerous comments that I'll share with you today. Uh, and I might mention, as well as Brian Zahn's work in his book, Sinners in the Hands, of a loving God. If I said to you, what in the hell is going on here? <laughs> What's the definition of that in hell? In hell. What in the hell is going on here? What do we mean by using that in hell? Well, by definition, I mean it, it's used to make a statement or a question more forceful. So, there's no way in hell. We don't have, the, we don't have a hope in hell of getting out of here. <laughs> what in hell is wrong now? See, we, we use that term rather liberally in our language and society. And it, it seems to enforce something that's being said, a statement or even a question. But what do you and I mean when we bring up the term hell, and what does it mean theologically? Well, there's actually three different basic ideas regarding hell. The first, infernalism. This is the belief that hell is an afterlife destination of eternal conscious torment 
for those who reject the proper belief system. Secondly, annihilationism. This is teaching that perishing, for instance, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not or will not perish. That that perishing used there is synonymous with death or eradication, rendering a full stop to the existence of the unredeemed. They simply cease to exist. Annihilationism. And then there's a third teaching or idea regarding hell that's called universalism. Many modern universalists believe that hell doesn't exist and that everyone goes to heaven, whatever that happens to be. Others view this position as a cleansing fire or curative chastisement that prepares one for God's presence, but that in the end you will be saved. I want to reiterate, I believe in hell. I believe there is a hell. I do not believe that that is a future destiny or place where the unredeemed are going to spend eternity in conscious torment. Was hell in the original Bible? While Western evangelicalism, heavily influenced by the teaching of John Calvin and the King James translation of the Bible, have widely accepted the teaching of hell as orthodox theological DNA for Christianity, the writers of the Hebrew Scripture did not. There is almost no afterlife theology in Old Testament Scripture. The primary word in Hebrew Scriptures translated hell by the King James translators is Sheol. And it simply means the grave or the abode of the dead. As Brian Zahn states, many concepts of hell are not derived from the text but read into the text. You see, the word hell did not appear anywhere in the original Hebrew Bible or Old Testament as we call it. In fact, the word hell is very hard to find in the New Testament. And in fact, only 11 times. And of those 11, it appears in the book of Matthew, the gospel writer who's also most closely associated with the book of Jeremiah, where we have then quite a few references to what appears to be hell, but it's Sheol and a place called Guiana. We'll deal in detail with that. So. What does the Bible have to say? Let's, let's get more and more into the scriptures. Now, here's the difficulty with that. Because there's not a lot of scriptures that deal with this subject from the standpoint of a place of eternal conscious torment in the future. It's just not used. I'm going to show you in three sections a chart. Look with me there. This is a chart of all the times in the Bible where the word hell appears by translation. So up at the top you see the King James Version uses it 31 times in the Old Testament, 23 times in the New Testament, a total of 54 times. The New King James backs off of that about half for a total of 32 times. But then as you start getting into more and more common and popular English translations of today, for instance, the New International Version, 
and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, hell never appears in the Old Testament. And you should know that the Holman Christian Standard Bible, by the way, is produced by the Southern Baptist Convention and is one of the most um, critical, analytical translations, thought to be, at least by their denomination, to be very, very extremely accurate. But it is, it is indeed very, very conservative. In that translation of the Bible, there are no occurrences of the word hell in the Old Testament and only 11 in the New Testament. And I already mentioned to you where those came. Now that's down significantly from the King James translation. That's interesting, isn't it? And then Jeff, number two and number three, what I simply want to show you here, that as you continue now to go into the more literal Modern English translations, for instance, the New Testament in Greek and English, Young's literal translation, Rotherham's emphasized Bible, one of the most literal translations, word-for-word translations, somewhat difficult to read because it actually leaves the words in the tenses of the Hebrew and the Greek and in the order in which they were written oftentimes. Rotherham's uh, emphasized Bible has zero occurrences of the word hell. Weymouth's New Testament in modern speech, zero occurrences. We keep moving down there, and in the third slide that uh, Jeff has for you there, the New Testament, a translation, emphatic dedic, the Greek and English in a linear, the New American Bible, again, very literal uh, word-for-word type of translation, the New Testament, a new translation by Gerber, uh, the Christian Bible, so on and so forth. There are no occurrences in these English translations of the word hell. You see, hell or eternal suffering was not the promised justice in any Old Testament situation where God judged evil. Think of it, Adam and Eve. Did he say to them, you're going to go to hell? Sodom and Gomorrah, did he promise that their eternal destiny was hell? But our evangelical mind and the DNA of that which has been brought over by Calvinism and the King James translation certainly would imply that of all groups of people, those in Sodom and Gomorrah are going to hell, when the text actually does not claim that at all. Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, he was not told that he was going to go to hell. All of the unbelievers who didn't believe and went got caught up in the flood, the flood that washed and purged the entire earth. Now, some don't even believe that that was a literal event, but regardless, the condemnation, and there was a condemnation on the, quote, unbelievers, but it was an eternal conscious torment. Isn't that interesting? And in the New Testament, there are two different Greek words that are used or translated hell by the King James translation. Now, here's the first one, Hades. Hades, like Sheol in the Hebrew, simply means the realm of the dead. Here's its use in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. And see, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades, or King James translates it, hell. It's not actually in the Bible, the word hell, again. So, it's the Greek word Hades, which simply means the abode of those who have died. 
the place of the dead. Only the antiquated King James Version translates Hades as hell. All other English translations either leave Hades untranslated or translated as, watch this, the grave. Now, the second New Testament word that the King James translated hell is the word Gehenna. This is a reference to the Valley of Hinnon. That valley is mentioned in Jeremiah, hence the tie between Matthew and Jeremiah. Jeremiah has quite, to, quite a lot to say about this Valley of Hinnon, where people will go. This valley of the shadow of death had been an infamous site where children were sacrificed as burnt offerings upon the hideous, fiery idols of Molech. Later, the Valley of Hinnon became the city garbage dump, a place where the fires were never quenched and maggots never died. Does that begin to sound like some of the language that you have heard regarding hell? What a tormenting place it is and gnashing teeth and the worm never dies in a place of fire. It's all very understandable because there was a literal place outside the gates of, uh, of Jerusalem called Gehenna or in the Hebrew, the Valley of Hanan, as we find in Jeremiah's prophetic writings. As a burning maggot-infested garbage dump, the Valley of Hinnom, translated from Hebrew, Gehenom, or literally Valley of Hinnom, to the Greek Gehenna, it became a primary source for imagining hellish judgment. Six centuries before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, it, it's there in the text of Jeremiah's writings. Six centuries before Christ, Jeremiah predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in this valley, burning with fire and maggots and all of that, the Valley of Hinnom. Now, by the way, that prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar sacked and burned Jerusalem in 587 B.C. It's not a place we're going to. It's something that literally happened when Jerusalem was destroyed and Jeremiah prophesied it. But again, evangelicals in the King James Version and those who are set on a DNA that hell is written into all good Christian thinking, bring all of that forward as though it all exists today, and that's a, 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 a future place where unbelievers are going to go. Now, watch this. Similarly, Jesus predicted the impending doom of Jerusalem during the final week leading up to his crucifixion. You have his words. He said to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to Gehenna? King James once again, sentenced to hell. But the fact is, is that in A.D. 70, the Roman armies came through Jerusalem and Titus completely wiped out Jerusalem, laying it bare and then taking the bodies of those people that lived there and throwing them into the valley of Gehenna, a place where, quote, the smoke never goes out, the fires never stop burning. Well, again, literally, 
night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year, because it was a garbage dump and because of what they burned there, the refuge of the city outside the city, it, it, it was a, a, an evil, dark place and bodies were destroyed there. Is your mind willing to accept some of this actual history rather than needing to spiritualize something that only one translation of the Bible even brings forward into the New Testament? An archaic translation of the Bible to boot? Brian Zahn has said in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Living God, and I quote, it's very eye-opening to realize that in all the evangelistic sermons found in the book of Acts, none of them makes an appeal to afterlife issues. Not one. If preaching the gospel is telling people how to avoid the afterlife of hell, the apostles in Acts didn't preach the real gospel. Peter and Paul were not preaching the gospel of how to go to heaven and not hell when you die. How interesting that they missed that. <laughs> Let me give you a couple of reasons why the early church did not believe that hell lasts forever. They believed and knew there was a place called Hinnon, the valley. They believed in a place called Gehenna. It was right outside the city gates. They knew of destruction Destruction was prophesied both by Jeremiah and by Jesus. This is real stuff. But it's not a supernatural afterlife place of torment for those who don't believe. Now, Gehenna is such an important part of any study on hell so that you can understand the nature of what the scriptures are talking about, what the Bible really means when it brings up Gehenna or Hades or Sheol, that Brad Jerzak in his book did an entire chapter just on Gehenna. And then he produced a chart. I have that chart here, and again, we're going to full screen this now without me being in the view and show you in thirds I divided it, a little bit about Gehenna and its backstory here. So, the, Ge the Gehenna backstory, the valley of the sons of Henan. Number one, the unholy fire of child sacrifice. Number two, the cleansing fire of Josiah's reforms. Number three, the destruction fire of foreign conquest. Number four, the memorial fire of the Gehenna dump. And anybody that would like these charts that I'm showing you, by the way, let me know, and I'll be happy to email this to you as well as my notes. So when Jeremiah prophesied about, quote, hell, he was actually talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in a place where people were thrown outside of the city for destruction, having nothing, though, to do with an eternal conscious torment of their soul whom God had abandoned, all right? Then we have Jeremiah's prophecies regarding Henon. His warning in Jeremiah 7, judgment in Jeremiah 19, promise in Jeremiah 31 and 32, and fulfillment in Jeremiah 52. 
And then we have two Gehenna traditions which develop out of this prophetic word from Jeremiah. We have number one, the historic prophetic tradition which Jeremiah and Jesus use. Jesus' use of Gehenna entered intentionally references Jeremiah's prophetic use of Henan to represent literal destruction. So hell is a literal place, one could say. But it's not the hell that we talk about. It's the Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna that Jesus and Jeremiah are referring to. He recalls the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. as a warning to the impending, the impending fall of Jerusalem that's going to take place 40 years after Jesus dies. In 70 A.D., Jerusalem is brought to rubble and wiped out. And bodies are cast into Gehenna. He warned of this. All right, and then we'll slip down the last slide on on this that we have for you is sort of the lower third of this study of the backstory of Gehenna. This is the apocalyptic infernalist tradition. All right, so first you have the Jewish apocalyptic which had eternal conscious torment, permanent annihilation, that it purifies or punishes, spectacle for the righteous, pit of fire and torment, punishment by the angels, spirits in fiery furnace. Now, that's the Enoch version of Jewish apocalyptic. That's not in the Jewish scriptures, but it's in Enoch, which you understand is a writing not included in the canon of Scripture. Then we have the rabbis in their Talmudic. This is what they believed about this place or this tradition. It's a place of literal after lake suffering, but it can be for purification, not eternal conscious torment. Zechariah 13.9. It often has a time limit to it, such as, 12 months, it's suggested, that it may exploit the good deeds, especially for the poor, that one can be rescued by God out of this place, 1 Samuel 2.6, that hell itself is consumed and transformed, actually, and it becomes a place for the righteous to dwell, Psalm 49 and 84. Oh, and then we can't leave this out because then we have the Christian infernalists of today, the, quote, traditional evangelicals who take this apocalyptic language and they turn it into a place of eternal conscious torment. So regardless of the fact that hell's not in the Bible and that there's a Hebrew word shoal and a Greek word Hades both mean just a place of death, They take that and they mix it with lake of fire and a literal afterlife and Revelation, the book of Revelation, especially chapter 20, and all of a sudden you've got this place called hell where people who do not believe the way that they should and don't accept Jesus the way that is prescribed are going to go and spend eternity in eternal conscious torment. How about a quick survey of the early church and what they believed? 
What, what did you realize they didn't have a Bible? There was no Bible in the early church. There were the, quote, Old Testament scriptures or writings, the prophetic writings and the book of Moses, and they had those in scrolls. But there was no Bible as we think of it. So when we go back to the early church and we read some of the early church fathers, including all the way back to Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament or the letters and books that are included in the New Testament, it's interesting what we find and the lack of a place called hell as eternal uh, conscious torment. So first century now, first century Paul. It is interesting to note that Paul never used the word hell in any of his writings, though he was considered to be the theologian of the New Testament. He spoke of God's post-mortem purging by fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, but never of hell per se. The Gospel of John, the disciple perhaps closest to Jesus' heart, never used the word hell in his gospel. It's also interesting to note that in the book of Acts, it never mentions the word hell, except to speak of Jesus' liberating us from it. Acts never uses the word hell to describe any part of the Christian message which established the early church. So there's first century. Now, let's go to second century. Second century, Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, all right? Clement was the first to speak of God's fire as a, quote, wise fire, which purges the sinner unto salvation. Quote, God's punishments are saving and disciplinary in Hades, leading to conversions and choosing rather than repentance than, uh, excuse me, and choosing rather the repentance than the death of the sinner. And especially since souls, although darkened by passions, when released from their bodies, are able to perceive more clearly because of their being no longer obstructed by the paltry flesh. We can set no limits to the agency of the Redeemer to redeem, to rescue, to discipline. It is His work, and so will He continue to operate after life. Isn't that beautiful? One of our early church fathers writing about Hades, writing about the afterlife, that there's hope in the afterlife. Yes, it can be disciplinary. Yes, it can go on for a time, but it's not eternal. And it's redemptive, not destructive. It's not tormenting in eternal conscious torment. It's a second opportunity. And notice, he draws attention to the fact that it might just be that once somebody reaches this place of Gehenna or this place of afterlife or hell that now that they've been stripped of all of the bodily stuff that goes on that we wore there you're going to be more sensitive much more sensitive and conscious and aware of the love of God the mercy of God the grace of God the message of Jesus and you're going to have another opportunity wow Second century. <laughs> We're just talking a hundred years removed from Jesus, from John, from Paul, the actual writers of the Bible. All right, here's third century origin. I love origin. Origin's my origin's my guy. He's my favorite out of all the church fathers. Listen to this. Quote When the Son is said to be subject to the Father, 
the perfect restoration of the whole creation is signified. So also, when enemies are said to be subject to the Son of God, the salvation of the conquered and the restoration of the lost is in that understood to consist. So when the New Testament, according to Origen, talks about the salvation of all and the restoration of a whole creation and that even the enemies of God are going to bow the knee, according to Origen, he says, look, they're all included in this loving salvation of the Lord. Here's the fourth century, Gregory of Nicaea. What therefore is the scope of Paul's argument in this place, 1 Corinthians 15? That the nature of evil at length be wholly exterminated and divine immortal goodness embrace within itself every rational creature so that of all who were made by God, not one shall be excluded from his kingdom. Does that give you hope? I mean, even if somebody on this planet and in this life rejects completely anything to do with the Lord and then goes to, all right, excusing universalism. So let's say we don't believe in that, but we don't believe in eternal conscious torment either. Well, so, yeah, it is possible that there could be something in eternal hope, righteous hope, that we can put our stakes down in a thing called hope where God's ultimate love and redemption is going to rule out so that all were made by God, not one shall be excluded from his kingdom. All the viciousness, viciousness that like a corrupt matter is mingled in things shall be dissolved and consumed in the furnace of purgatorial fire. And everything that had its origin from God shall be restored to its pristine state of purity. That's what he believed. So see, we have real difficulty saying that hell is the traditional position of the church. No, it never has been and it never will be. It's the position of a small group of people, largely Western evangelicals who keep it alive based on an archaic translation of the Bible. The early church had a significantly different view than much of the church does today. Hell's purpose for the majority of the church fathers was seen as a purifier rather than punishing, restoring rather than torturing, healing rather than destroying. They believed hell was God's crisis management for the lost souls. Hell was for all those who did not authentically receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior during their earthly lives. I want to know more. Well, you, <laughs> what you need to do is get Brad's book because it's exhaustive in going into it. There's no way I and a 35-minute message on six Sundays can bring you all that you need to know and understand. But thank God for this tremendous book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, and Brian's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. 
But right now, before we close, let me give you three scriptural premises against eternal punishment from the scriptures. Number one, Jesus did not preach eternal punishment. Now, here's the passage that's used more than any other to support the idea that Jesus taught hell and that he taught it as eternal conscious torment. Ready? Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a scholar by the name of William Barclay who was professor of divinity and biblical criticism at Glasgow University and the author of many commentaries. I remember reading William Barclay's commentaries when I was in Bible school. His writings are pervasive through all of modern Christian study and evangelicalism. He's well respected and thought of including a translation of the New Testament that he wrote and a very popular daily study Bible series. I'm going to quote William Barclay regarding Matthew 25. Ready? One of the key passages is Matthew 25, verse 46, where it is said that the rejected go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Listen now. The Greek word for punishment is kolesis, which was not originally an ethical word at all. It originally meant the pruning of trees to make them grow better. I think it is true to say that in all Greek secular literature, kalesis is never used of anything but remedial punishment. Here's how Rotherham's emphasized Bible translates that word in verse 46 of Matthew 25. Age-abiding correction. Here's how Young's literal translation translates that word in Matthew 25. As the punishment age, not eternal conscious torment. A specified time, it's remedial, and it will come to a close. David Bentley Hart, Eastern Orthodox theologian and patristic scholar, notes that, quote, the early church fathers who knew ancient Koine Greek far better than do most moderns simply did not translate Ianus Coleus as a phrase meaning eternal punishment to be applied to the duration and nature of hell, per Matthew 25, 46. Hart observes that, quote, patristic theologians as diverse as Origen, Gregory of Nicaea, Gregory of Nicaea, and Isaac of Nineveh saw in the phrase Ionus Colossus, typically translated as eternal punishment, but possibly to read as a correction for a long period or an age or even an age to come, no cause to conclude that hell was anything but a temporary process of spiritual purification. Yeah. So, you can't you can't grab onto universalism, that's too far out, no problem. Many of the church early fathers didn't either. And they did believe in a place of, quote, hell, but it was remedial purification, remedial back, bringing back to life. Number two, I told you I'm going to give you three quick scriptural premises against eternal punishment. Number two, 
the lake of fire or the flames of judgment seek to heal, not to torture. All right? Now, we're going to have this full screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to see this. Verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by what? Say it out loud. Fire. And the fire will do what? Test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Watch this. But if anyone's work is burned up, I guess that could be a definition for hell, couldn't it? If anyone's work is burned up, not their soul, not their person, not their being, but their work, he will suffer loss, yes. You are going to suffer loss in the afterlife if, he says, though he himself will be saved, but only as of through fire, not annihilated, not, not wiped out, not eternal conscious torment, but you're actually saved through that fire, that remedial punishment, if you will. Only symbolic figures are ever cast into the lake of fire, never a proper name. When you read references to the lake of fire or the river of fire, it is always symbolic. It is never a proper name that's used. The early church believed God's hellfire was not inflicted to destroy the lost, but rather to ultimately save them. God's fire was wise in that it revealed, it cleansed, it cured lost souls of the false identities accumulated during their fallen lifetimes. The wood, the hay, the stubble, all these false identities will be burned off, but the soul will be saved itself, not lost. Greek scholar Francois Dutois states regarding Revelations chapter 20, one of the more difficult passages to interpret, every single person who ever dies in ignorance, indifference, or unbelief is immediately confronted with and mirrored in the once-for-all death and resurrection of Jesus. He says that is the brazen altar that's so often spoken about symbolically in Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel, so on and so forth. That is the cross and the resurrection. And, and suddenly, if you are ignorant or indifferent or in unbelief and you get to the end of life, you're going to be faced with the cross and the death of Jesus and his resurrection. This is pictured here in the lake of burning sulfur, cleansing and purifying like a furnace, separating the gold from the dross in the mindsets of the masses. How beautiful. You see, God destroyed death and evil 
and he overcomes it with good. That's number three. This is how I know that there is no eternal conscious torment. This is premise number three, that God destroyed death and evil, and he has overcome it by good. What do I base that on? Let's look at the scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on who? Say it. The evil and on who? The good, so both. And he sends his reign on the who? The just, and say it out loud. The, he sends his reign on the unjust? He causes his son to rise on those who are evil? Yeah, that's because he's loving and he's good and he's redemptive. And there is no afterlife place of eternal conscious torment. There is a place of purging. There is a place that's remedial. There is a place that will end after all are brought back to life. George MacDonald, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament. Watch this. That through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, either Jesus did that or he didn't do it. And did he do it for those who aren't believers? Or is there something that the unbeliever has to do in order to make that true for them? George MacDonald wrote, nothing is inexorable but love. Love is one and love is changeless. For love loves into purity. I brought this scripture up last week and we'll close again with it. In Jeremiah, that great prophetic book that speaks of this valley of Hinnon, in chapter 7, verse 31, looking at the, the great sadness and destruction of that valley, it says this, verse 31, Jeremiah chapter 7, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to do what? Watch. To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Listen. Which, he continues, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. The message translation translates that this way. A shocking perversion of all that I am and all that I command. The TNK version translates it this way which I never commanded, which never came into my mind. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, even this conservative Southern Baptist translation, listen, the translation of verse 31, a thing I did not command, I never entertained the thought. God has never for a moment entertained the thought of you winding up in a place of eternal conscious torment. Never. Not one soul has he ever even imagined. It's never entered his heart that he would use a place like the Valley of Hinnon or Hades or Shoal or Gehenna to burn you in eternal conscious torment. That's what evil people do. That's how heathens sacrifice their children. That's not what God does. So he says, look, don't, don't pin hell on me. <laughs> what the hell are we thinking? What the hell are we doing? How in the hell are we going to get out of this mess? Well, we need to do a little study 
and perhaps not accept the status quo that the traditional DNA of Christianity, according to some, especially Western evangelicalism, is that the church has always taught hell. No, the church hasn't always. And Jesus didn't. And the book of Acts didn't. And Paul didn't. And Jeremiah and Jesus weren't referring to that when they brought up the word. And only seven, 11 times in all of the New Testament is the word Gehenna even used seven times in Matthew, all in conjunction with Jeremiah's prophecies about a valley that we now know has nothing to do with afterlife, but was a valley of destruction that was used. Now would be a good time for just something contemplative, Jeff. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's take a minute in his presence. <laughs> 